0: The Bible reading comes from Exodus chapter 11 and chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from there. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is in behind the handmill." And all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the heavens in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled or in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Thanks, Ann. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We're going to continue this morning in a series that we've been doing throughout this Advent season, each week taking uh, a different attribute or characteristic of God. Uh, and they've all had peas so far, and then I, I really I could not come up with one. Uh, so we've talked about God being patient, uh, God being—now uh, I'm not going to be able to get them—present— and then last week, God being powerful. And then, then, then this week, we want to talk about the justice of God or how God comes, you know, God comes to execute his justice. And I've labored uh, forever and ever all week thinking, I gotta have, and my kids were so upset, there's got to be a P. It's got to be a P. What's the deal? And then we're sitting around the dinner table last night, and I think Ashley or one of the kids said, how about perfect? And I thought, oh man, that's it. But it's too late. Things have been printed. So God is just or God is perfect. That's our theme for today, Okay. What does it mean for God to be a God of justice? How does this, this, this story that we're looking at here in the Exodus uh, reveal his justice? And ultimately, how is it revealed in the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world? Okay, uh, Three things about uh, the Lamb. That's, that's really what we're going to center on today, is this, this, the, this Lamb. Three things about the Lamb. Uh, I want you to see first why we need the Lamb, because that's what the story reveals. Secondly, how we're saved by the Lamb. Okay, and then thirdly, who is the lamb? Or who or what does the lamb here in this Exodus Passover story point us forward to? So why we need the lamb, how we're saved by the lamb, and who is the lamb, and we want to talk about all three of those things. Okay, first, why we need the lamb. And the reason is, from the passage, the destroyer is coming. Merry Christmas, right? Isn't this such a feel-good Christmas story? I'm going to come, I'm going to kill every firstborn son. Merry Christmas. Okay, God is a God of justice. See, the destroyer is coming because he is a God of justice. And so, for example, in Deuteronomy 32, four, we read that all of his ways are just. He is a perfect God, we're told there. In Psalm 89, justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. So Psalm 89.14. Justice means that God is always right in what he does and that he always does what is right. Let me say that again. The fact that God is justice means that God is always right in what he does and that he must always do what is right. He's always right in what he does. If God does it, it was the right thing for him to do because the internal moral law of his being requires him to always do what is right. God is a judge, which means that he repays everyone according to their works. He doesn't reward wickedness and punish obedience. He doesn't see sin and do nothing. His justice demands that he punish sin and iniquity. And here in this text, we're told, verse 12 of chapter 12, that this is exactly what he's doing. He's coming to execute justice. Pharaoh's sinned. Egypt has sinned. And God is coming against them in judgment. And what he does here, as horrifying as it might be to you and I... It is not cruel, it is not excessive, it is just. it's right. it's perfect. Now, what's happening here in Exodus chapter twelve is that God's eternal judgment day judgment is coming down. I mean and I hope I think you know what I mean by that, don't you? The Bible says that there's a day that is coming, even for us, the day of the Lord is what the old old and New Testament scriptures call it. When God will bring the earth and humanity to judgment, and he will right every wrong, and he will account for every sin, and he will repay every single person according to their works. And the Bible also says that until that day, God's anger, it's an interesting metaphor, is being stored up. It's being held in reserve for that day. But what happens in the Bible is every now and again, the cup of God's wrath gets filled to the top and begins to pour over the edges, and that's what's happening here. The end of time, judgment day, judgment, the wrath of God against sin that's been stored up is beginning to come down ahead of time as a picture of what will happen on the great day of the Lord the Bible talks about. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but if you're reading Revelation uh, with us, we've read about the plagues. Uh, in Revelation, the trumpets in Revelation chapter 7, and the bowls now in Revelation 15 and 16. And the language is meant to echo the language of these plagues here in Exodus because this is kind of the paradigmatic way of, of talking about God coming against humanity in judgment. But notice, okay, very important thing for us to take note of here. It is not just Egypt that God is coming after here, but also Israel. Israel's under the threat of judgment too. So see what's what's there's a transition that's taking place for the people of God at this point in the story. Pharaoh is no longer their greatest threat. God is. The destroyer's coming for them too. And this sets up the crisis in the passage, right? I mean, didn't God come down to rescue them? I mean, isn't he there to save Israel? So what's this about the destroyer not only coming after Pharaoh but coming after the households in Israel too? And what it means is, what we're, what we're catching wind of here in this passage is that there's a greater rescue uh, that, that the people of God need than their rescue from Egypt. And I was struck by this, I, I don't know, my, my is anybody else the weeks are starting to get mixed up for you? I mean, things just I don't know if it was this week or last week, but we decided we were going to watch The Prince of Egypt uh, at our house recently, and what was fascinating about it is, is the only, we only have it on VHS, so we pulled out the VCR, hello, pray for us, my goodness. We're still watching the VCR in the Bennett household. But, so we watched it, grainy as it was. And I remember at the very end of the, of the movie, I'd not seen it in a while. Um, Zipporah turns to Moses after they've crossed the Red Sea and, and God has destroyed Pharaoh. And she says, Moses, look, look, Moses, your people, your people are free. And out of my mouth, because I'm preparing for this stuff, right? Uh, and the, my family looks at me like I'm crazy in these moments. But out of my mouth, she says, Moses, look at your people. They're free. And immediately I said, no, they're not. No, they're not. They're free from Egypt, but they're not free. They're not free from sin and death. And, and what there's a spiritual lesson that God wants us to learn and wanted them to learn, that God is coming against both Egypt and Israel because... There's a greater threat than the political oppression that they were experiencing here, and that is the threat of sin and death. And sin is a universal human condition. There aren't good guys and bad guys. And the way God gets at this is through the claim on the firstborn here. See, it's the firstborn sons that are going to die, both Egyptian and Israelite, right? And that may mean little to us, but it would have been an unmistakable message to these ancient people that there's a debt of sin over every family. Because the firstborn son held the hopes and the joy of the family. And God is coming against the firstborn son as if to say, to every single person, Israelite and Egyptian, there is a debt of sin and I'm calling in the debt. And so I'm going to ask you to do something with me this morning. Not, It might be hard for you and this is going to sound really strange, but I want you to put aside your theology for just a minute so that you can feel the force of the story. Right? You're thinking, what? You want me to what? What did you just say? Because, see, sometimes our theology gets in the way of spiritual experience, and I want us to feel this. And to feel it, you have to use your imagination. You have to get into the story, okay, a little bit. Because even if you're a Christian, this is your condition. And here's what I want you to see. Every single one of us in this room is under the sentence of death and hell, and the destroyer, we're told, is coming for us all. Egypt and Israel. Christian and non-Christian, and it sets up this amazing crisis. Now, I'm going to get back to the theology and solve it, okay? So don't panic. I just want you to, I, I'm trying, I want us to feel that reality the way the Israelites must have felt it on this night. And there's a huge crisis uh, that, that comes to a head here uh, in this event. And, and the crisis is something like this. It's the combination of two problems, Okay. Problem number one is that God is a God of justice, and no matter what he might like to do, he cannot suspend the demands of his justice on a whim. And so what I'm I'm anticipating the objection of, you know, okay, all this talk about sin. I mean, really, can't God just overlook sin? I mean, isn't that what the gospel is all about? You know, sure, we've sinned, but God just kind of winks, you know, at our sin and then gives us a do-over. Because in the New Testament, you know, we find out he really is a God of love and compassion, not a God of justice and wrath. Can I say that's not what the gospel is about? God is coming against both Egypt and Israel, Israel who he loves, Israel whom he's chosen, Israel his people. And the lesson is that though he might like to, there's an internal reality. God can't just suspend the demands of his justice. In the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, Edmund, if you're familiar with the story, betrays Aslan, who's the Christ figure, and his siblings. And though they recover him from the White Witch, she comes, if you remember this part in the story, she comes to claim him... And she appeals to the deep magic which is engraved on the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea that, uh, that, was, that, that he put into Narnia at its founding. And the deep magic was this, that a traitor's life was forfeit, and so Edmund must die because of his sin. And what she says is it's fascinating. She says, if Edmund did not die, then the very fabric of reality in Narnia would begin to unravel because it was founded upon the principle of justice. That's the deep magic. Sin must be punished. And what's fascinating about about the scene in the movie and the book is, is um, that the children and the other animals expect Aslan to fight the witch about this, right? But he doesn't. He can't. Susan even asks, she says, um, about her brother. She says, oh, Aslan, can't we? I mean, you won't, will you? I mean, can't we do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something you can Due to work against it, and the only response she gets is a frown from Aslan's face and a rebuke at the suggestion, because you see, God's justice demands that sin be punished, and therefore, if he were to see sin and do nothing, he would have to deny the very essence of his being. God would have to stop being God in order to do that. And that's why Lewis said it the way he did in the book. He said, if there was not blood for Edmund's treachery, if God did not bring sin to justice, the very fabric of the reality of the universe would begin to fray and come undone. Isn't that that fascinating? And so God can't suspend the demands of his justice. Okay, But there's a second problem that brings the crisis to a head. God can't suspend the demands of his justice, and on the other hand, we can't meet the demands of his justice. See, that, that doesn't keep us from trying, and of course this is what most religion is about. Do good and appease God, prove to him that you love him, right? But here it is, the is coming for the good guys and the bad guys, and the spiritual lesson is there are no good guys. I mean, if you compare the Egyptians and the Israelites, of course the Israelites come out on top, but God does not measure the good guys against the bad guys. He measures both the good guys and the bad guys against the demands of his justice. And so we are all under the sentence of death and hell. There's nothing we can do. There are no good works that are good enough to save us. There's no argument that we can make. Our mouths are silent before him. There's no spiritual trophies. We can show him that will keep us safe. We can't solve this problem. And the best illustration I know to to help you and me understand this is if you were here 10 years ago in 2013 when the hurricanes hit, or 2003, sorry, and 4, 2003 and 4, uh, when when the hurricanes came in 2000, I think it was 2004, uh, you, you might remember uh, Charlie was the first one of my in-laws because Charlie was coming up through the, the, the Gulf. They live on the Gulf Coast. My in-laws evacuated to our house for Charlie, <laughs> which, you know, make, still makes me laugh because, of course, at the very last minute, it changed directions and came up through Punta Gorda and right up through the middle of the state. And so... Uh, we were there huddled down in our house with the evacuees who ended up in the the eye of the storm. But in the back corner of my house, there was an oak tree uh, that was diseased. And my brother-in-law is an arborist, and so uh, we realized this was not uh, good once we realized the storm was kind of headed our way. And so we tried to tie it down as best we could, but it was very obvious. We knew that if a strong gust came, uh, it would probably send the thing tumbling. And, of course, 120-mile-an-hour winds sent it straight through the roof of our house and destroyed the back half of our house and the rain is pouring in on top of the kids' beds and and everything. So uh, eventually, you might remember, we got it off and we tarped the huge holes in the back of the house. But if you were around then, you remember that it was about ten days later that Francis came. And then, of course, after that, Gene. And I remember sending my family away for both of those storms but not being able to bring myself Uh, to to leave because here is my house basically open and exposed and there's this thing bearing down on me uh, and there's absolutely nothing I can do to stop it and just how maddening that was. And what this passage teaches us is, is there's a hurricane of judgment and wrath that is headed in our direction and there's nothing we can do to avert it or get out of the way of it. In the God of justice, you are up against something that is coming to destroy you, and you have nowhere to go, you have nowhere to hide, you have nothing to bargain with, so what are you going to do? And Of course, the answer is you can't do anything, so what are you going to do? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said that this is the moment that defines whether or not you're a Christian. He said, if your solution, when you begin to realize this, that God that remember what the two, that God can't suspend the demands of His justice, and that we can't meet the demands of His justice, He says, if your solution to that crisis is to do something, then you're not a Christian yet, because a Christian to be a Christian means that you know you're like the tree in my yard, you're weak and diseased, and you don't stand a chance against the storm that's coming, and so you have no other choice but to put your hope in God. See that that's Lewis says that's faith. Faith is recognizing. That all we have done and all we can do is spiritual nothingness. And you're not a Christian, he says, until you have nothing. And yet the great struggle of Christianity is to remember that you have nothing. And the, but the irony that we learn in this text is that the only way to meet the God of justice is with nothing. And of course that's where the story begins to turn because here comes the destroyer coming for both the Egyptians and the Israelites, and they literally have nothing, and yet what we read in the text, and I'm kind of paraphrasing the story instead of getting into the particulars, is that the Israelites are saved and not destroyed. And it leaves you to wonder how. How is it that this destroyer is coming, and yet the tragedy is averted? If you look again at the text, the answer, of course, is the lamb. Look again there in verse 13. God says, Take a lamb and kill it, and take the blood and put it on the doorposts, and I will see the blood, and I will pass over you, and no plague will enter into the house to destroy you. And so, what we find is that in every house in Egypt, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. The lambs were slain as a sacrifice for the firstborn sons in the place of the firstborn sons. And when God came, what we're told is, He saw the blood. And his justice was satisfied, and he passed over the house where the lamb was slain. Now, this is not the first time that we've seen this. In fact, what, what this story reveals is that there's a pattern that occurs over and over again throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. In fact, it's so pervasive that you can't really ignore it. It's a major theme from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, right? You could say that the Bible is, and this is our second point, the story of the lamb, so in Genesis chapter 3, for example, which we looked at not long ago together in our series on the Old Testament, one of the effects of the fall of Adam and Eve, you might remember, is, is their eyes are opened uh, when they fall into sin, and they realize that they're naked and they feel shame, and God comes and begins to walk in the garden, and, and what do they do? They hide because they're afraid, and and what the commentators say is that their nakedness is an existential reality. They know, In other words, they know that they are wrong and that they are guilty and that they deserve to be punished and they've been caught with their hand in the cookie jar. And what God had said to them before was that if they ate the forbidden fruit, they would surely die. And now God is coming and there's nowhere to go and nowhere to hide and no bush to dive behind that can keep them from being found out. And yet, what we read in the story there is that God did not kill them as he said he would. He did not shed their blood as he promised would happen if they disobeyed him. But there was blood that was shed, and it was the blood of a substitute. At the end of the story, we're told that God made garments of skin and clothed them, and we're left to wonder, where did the skins come from? And I think to assume that one of the animals in the garden was killed so that God could clothe his children. And So though, though we often miss it there at the very beginning, God takes the life of an innocent to cover the guilty the life of an innocent, a substitute in the place of the guilty. Okay, so there it is. But not only there, also in Genesis chapter 22, in the story of the man Abraham and his son Isaac, whom he'd waited for God to give to him for so long. And then, of course, God comes to Abraham and asks him to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice, the firstborn son again, right? And God is calling in the sin debt that Abraham owed to him. And yet, just as Abraham is about... To bring the knife down to kill his son who's laying there on the wood on the altar. A voice from heaven stays his hand and he looks up and there caught by the horns in the thicket is what? A lamb. And this is what we read. Then Abraham went and took the lamb and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And then continuing on, on the same mountain where Abraham sacrificed the lamb instead of his son, centuries later, Israel's temple would be built, the epicenter of their religious and cultural and liturgical life together. And at the temple, worshipers would come and they would bring lambs as sin offerings and the priests would sacrifice the lamb as a substitute for the one who had sinned. And there was a liturgy what, what part of what the worshiper would do is the worshiper who brought the sacrifice would lay their hand upon the head of the sacrifice, and they would confess their sins so as to transfer the sins that they were liable for to the sacrifice, and then the lamb was slain so that the worshiper might go free. See, this is this is this is an undeniable pattern. The blood of a substitute. That God's justice demanded a payment for sin, but there could be a stand-in. There could be a substitute. And yet we also find that this presents a major problem for us. And the problem is this, is that those people who came to the temple to sacrifice offerings as, as sin offerings for their sin, they had to keep coming back. Year after year they did this. Over and over again they did this. And the writer of Hebrews says the reason they had to come back over and over again is because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So we're be, See, throughout this whole story, including this story here of the Passover event, we're being set up for something, for something that's coming, something that we should be looking on the horizon for. And so, third then, the Passover lamb and all the other lambs in the Old Testament stories must point beyond themselves to something or someone else. And indeed, we know this to be the case. Because in John's Gospel, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming down the road, in John 1.29, Jeff read it as an assurance of pardon a few minutes ago. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And had you been there when he said that, and if you knew anything about the Bible at all, you would have immediately thought of this story here in Exodus chapter 20 and all the other stories where a lamb is sacrificed in the place of the worshiper or in the place of the firstborn. Because although it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, what about the blood of God Himself? At Christmas time, we celebrate the miracle and the wonder of God being born. God becoming a human, God wrapping his power and immensity in human flesh and blood. But why has he come? What does he come into the world to do? What's his mission? And what the scriptures teach and what Christian theology has taught through the ages is that he was literally born to die, that his death on the cross is the central event to which all of the history of God's dealing with the world has been moving. And that what Jesus is providing, though many missed it, was not a political exodus like the exodus that happens here from Egypt, Not an exodus from Rome, not political freedom. He was coming to free his people from sin and death itself. And if you take the truth of the gospel back into this passage here in Exodus chapter 12, it begins to make sense. Israel's firstborn sons were being spared because not the blood of the lamb was covering them. They were being saved because of the blood of the lamb. The firstborn sons of Israel were saved because God was going to give up his firstborn. In the old, uh, the old movie, The Iron Giant, which I'm, maybe you've seen and maybe you've not, you, uh, you, you know it's a story of an alien robot who befriends a young boy. And when the military comes, uh, because he's a, they perceive him to be a threat, uh, they come to destroy him. They launch a nuclear miss- missile uh, that will vaporize the giant, but also the entire town of the people that he's with. And so because of his love for this boy, he falls in love with this boy. And because he loves the boy, As the missile is bearing down upon the town, the giant launches himself into the air and meets the missile in the upper upper atmosphere and there's a massive nuclear explosion. He sacrifices himself in order to save the town and in the same way, the atomic bomb of God's wrath is coming down on us because of our sin and there's no escape, but then Jesus steps in and spills his blood to cover us. And he takes on the wrath that God has stored up through all the millennia and the atomic bomb and I know I'm mixing my metaphors a little bit. But the atomic bomb of God's wrath goes off in Jesus' soul so that we might be saved. And here's how this works. Whereas without the lamb, God's, God cannot suspend the demands of his justice and we cannot meet the demands of his justice so we're under the sentence of death and condemnation. But because of the Lamb, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then the demands of God's justice for you have been satisfied. So now what we're told in the Bible is that his justice works in the complete opposite direction. If your faith is in Jesus, if you're sheltered underneath his blood, because he's a God of justice, here's the good news. God cannot demand payment from you for your sins. Why? Because your debt has already been paid. And so the same justice that was coming after you now demands that you be forgiven and set free. And there's an Augustus Toplady hymn that says this so well. Uh, And and here's here's how Toplady puts it in his hymn. He says, From whence this fear and unbelief hast thou, O Father, put to grief thy spotless son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made and to the utmost farthing paid what thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath, divine payment, God cannot twice demand first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then my soul Unto thy rest, the merits of thy great high priest speak peace and liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God since Jesus died for thee. I mean, that's good. Those are good words. But look here, I want you to see. In John's gospel, in John chapter 1, verses 29, John tells us, Not just the Lamb of God has come, but look at what he says. Behold, behold the Lamb of God. And so we are to look at this Exodus story in light of what we learn about the Lamb in the gospel. And behold, and that word behold means to ponder, to think about, or to grasp, or to stare down until it becomes real in your heart. And so I want to finish this morning with a couple of points of application because I think this passage really does set us up. And I know I've kind of, this is the big, right? Big themes. We're not getting into the minutiae here this morning. But there are three things uh, that I think, just by way of application, that this passage really helps us with. Okay, Behold the Lamb of God. And if you do, if you do, if, if, if you spend your life, or if you spend the next few days, or whatever it might be, be, truly beholding the Lamb of God, a sacrifice for your sins, you will be different than the rest of the world. But you'll only be different when you realize what makes you different. Now that's confusing, so let me explain. If you take this chunk... Exodus 4 verse and, and four through 12. You'll, and you read it slowly. One of the things that will, make, that will make, begin to make sense and you'll notice that keeps popping up is how God is distinguishing between Israel and Egypt. And even here, look at verse 7, 6 and 7 in chapter 11. He says, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as has never have been, nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. I wish God would answer that prayer for me with my neighbors. You know... Or that promise that he would be, you know. Not a dog will growl. That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. You see that? And so the plagues, and in particular this last plague. God coming to kill every firstborn son. What, Yahweh is marking his people as being holy and belonging uniquely to him. But what marks them? I mean, what distinguishes them? See, you'll be different, but what makes you different? That's the issue. What? What? Why does God treat Israel Differently than Egypt. Why does he spare them and not Pharaoh and the people of Egypt? And the answer is the blood. That's it. That's all. The reason Israelite families were spared and Egyptian families were not was the blood. That's what marked them. And so if you're a Christian, you should be different and holy, different from the people around you who are not Christians. But what makes you different is what God has done for you. Not what you do or not what you believe. What makes us different is grace. So see, the destroyer didn't come. And he didn't look and see their good theology. And, oh, they've got good theology. I'll pass over the house. Right? He didn't come and see that they were moral. Oh, these are good people here and I'll pass over the house. He came and he saw the blood. And it was the blood that caused him to pass over. And so if you're here and you're a Christian... The only difference between you and the unbelieving world around you is to use the language of the Book of Revelation, that Christians have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And here's the thing: when you realize that, when you realize that, you'll be completely, you'll, you'll be different. <laughs> when you realize that it's grace that distinguishes us from 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 everybody else, that would make us different. We'll, for one thing, we'll be completely free of any sense of self righteousness or superiority or any thinking that we're any better than anybody else. Everybody's on the same spiritual egalitarianism. But also, you'll possess a deep and abiding joy and peace and confidence in God's love for you, okay? But this Passover event, what's happening here forever marks Israel as a people holy to the Lord, even as he gives them the law, right? Do you remember how the Ten Commandments begin? They begin with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods besides me, and then so on. So it's this redemption that god provides for them that turns them into a people holy unto the lord but in order to be holy the way god calls us to we have to remember that it's not our holiness that distinguishes us it's the blood it's grace but then secondly what is the difference okay what is what qualitatively what is the difference if you behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world How does that make your life different? What different trajectory does it it put your life on? And and here's the way I want to say it. You not only will have an Exodus-like experience, but you'll also begin to live an Exodus-shaped mission. Now, I'm I'm out of time, so let me just say it this way. Okay, and this this needs its own. We need a whole sermon just on this, but we have to move on and go on to to what's next. But I wish we had time to stay here because I, I am just so amazed What we learn about God here, God hates when the strong use their strength and their power to take advantage of and oppress the weak. And what's happening in the Exodus is God is coming, he's using his power to work for justice for the socially marginalized and the poor and the needy. And there's a reason why this Exodus story meant so much to slaves in the South in in the 1840s and 1850s. Mary, the mother of Jesus, sang about what her son would accomplish, and she echoed this idea. She said that that the result of Jesus' coming into the world is that the proud and the strong and the mighty would be brought down and that God would work for the poor and the oppressed. So if you behold the Lamb of God, that is, if you come to realize that you are poor and weak and helpless and Jesus came to rescue you when you were in that condition, then you will begin to live your life using whatever power and resources you have to help the outcast and the oppressed. But then, thirdly, so there's a difference, but you've got to realize what makes you different. And then, that, the quality that you'll begin to do Exodus like ministry or mission. But then, thirdly, and I think, and this is the last thing I want to say, and then we're done, is we also have to ask this question how do we maintain or how do we institutionalize our difference? I mean, how do we maintain our identity as a holy people unto the Lord? And this passage helps us with that as well, because you see that God commands that this Passover event be memorialized by Israel from this time forward and forever. Look at the beginning of chapter 12. The Passover was even to mark the beginning of their year. In other words, their whole identity and culture and sense of time even was to be defined by this great salvation by the Lord. And every year we're told that they were to celebrate a feast and to reenact the Passover event so that they might remember and not forget that they were a redeemed people that God saved them by His grace and that they belonged to Him. And so every year families would gather for a ritual meal. And then if, you, if a family didn't have enough money for a lamb. Those families would gather with other families. They would get together in houses. And the father would tell the story. And the children would ask the questions. And there was a particular liturgy that they would follow. To help them reenact this whole uh, scenario. It was highly ritualized. And for me really beautiful. And so let me just say this. What I think we have before us in times like Christmas. And Thanksgiving and such. Is a similar opportunity. It, it strikes me. Think about this, that the way faith was to be maintained in Israel was through a family meal. That, that's, that's important. That the way God meant for faith to be maintained and passed from generation to generation through, in Israel was through a family meal. And please don't miss the significance of the fact that at the center of our family life as a church is a ritual meal. But I want you to see God's plan for the spiritual health and nourishment of his people was for families to gather together around the table to eat and remember and reenact the story of salvation. So please, don't underestimate the spiritual significance and importance of the family meal. And let me say this particularly, ritual meals like the ones you'll celebrate with your family and friends this week. And of course, this meal we will share together this morning. So let's pray as we prepare to come to this table. Father... What, uh, what great truth there is for us in these stories, that in many ways, the whole Bible is the story of the Lamb, and at the very center of our celebration of Christmas is the reality that this baby that we celebrate, the King who had come into the world, came to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we as your people, uh, we look forward to the day when we will gather with you in heaven and we will celebrate the Supper of the Lamb the risen and exalted Christ who is the lion of the tribe of Judah and yet a lamb uh, that was slain before the foundations of the world. And in this meal, we now get to celebrate together. We enter into that reality, that heavenly reality, even in these moments. And so please come. uh, Help us as we take uh, this bread and this cup to behold the Lamb of God and in beholding him uh, that we would become like him so that we might bear fruit that will glorify uh, your holy name. That's our prayer and our hope. So this Christmas, give us great joy and give us eyes to behold in the child king, the one who's been sacrificed for our sins, so that we might be a people uh, who live uh, your mission in our city and in our world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've ever had a crisis averted at the last minute, when all hope seemed lost, and just as you thought, I'm done for, and then comes the rescue, you know that that's where the joy comes from. To stare down something that's beyond your ability to, to meet on your own, and to know that God has come in Jesus Christ to provide for our needs, and to shelter us, to cover us with the blood of the Lamb. And now, if you know that, and if you feel the threat of His judgment, and then the the... Uh, the sweetness of His mercy and grace towards you, then you will be somebody who celebrates Christmas well. Uh, and that's the promise of this benediction, that whereas His hand of judgment came down upon the people, uh, because we are sheltered by the blood, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, His hand is now raised to bless you uh, and to be with you. So receive the benediction then, and may it, um, may it resound in your heart uh, and bring, bring you joy and peace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.